Will you guys turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2? I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 for us, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll, we'll get started. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let's pray together. Father, we love your word, and we love the way that it breaks into this world. It challenges our common notions of what it means to be fully human. It gives us life, and it gives us a life that's totally abundant. It assures us of our forgiveness of our sins, which grieve us so much, and we're so grateful for that. We're also grateful for the way the Spirit uses it to transform our hearts and change them into hearts that look more and more like Jesus's, from one degree of glory to the other. I pray that this morning you would just guard me from saying anything uh, erroneous or unhelpful, and that you would strengthen all of us in the grace of your Son. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. Well, you'll... uh, Maybe you guys will remember where we are, the context that we're in. We're in 2 Timothy, and David told us a couple weeks ago that this transition... You guys remember we preached through 1 Timothy, and now we're in 2 Timothy. And David reminded us a couple weeks ago that the transition from 1 Timothy to 2 Timothy is actually quite stark. If you've got an Apostle Paul writing a letter in 1 Timothy that's sort of in a bad way, he's doubly so in 2 Timothy. And if you've got a recipient of a letter that was sort of nervous about his new vocation, he's doubly so. And just brittle nerves have turned drastically to terror and fear. And so we've got a different situation entirely on our hands. That is a bleak, bleak situation. Timothy has problems within the church, right? His church is having a difficult time sort of rallying around the simple truths of the gospel. That's Timothy's problem within. But Timothy's got problems without, too, because he lives in Ephesus. He's trying to plant a church in Ephesus, which was an epicenter of debauchery in the ancient world. This is not a culture and a society that easily embraces the virtues and ethics and dogma of the Christian faith and the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't that kind of place. This is an antagonistic place. Um, And to make matters worse, I think that probably both Paul and Timothy know that Paul's just not long for the world. He's not going to be around much longer. Now, I haven't been to Ephesus like David has, but I have been to Rome. And in Rome, just a little bit off the Colosseum, there sits, supposedly, the cell that Paul wrote the letter of 2 Timothy from. Now, I've been inside that cell. It's a dark and damp and bleak place. It's not a place any of you would want to be in. And so, from the context of both our writer and our recipient, we've got a dark situation on our hands. 
And this is a place, this whole context that we're talking about, is a place where doubt can really establish itself. Where faith can begin to waver and where the wavering of faith can end up in shipwreck. I think the kind of doubt that's going on here is just really, very simply, the kind of doubt that happens when you're mistrusting that God is really moving in the world, that He's really active. You guys understand what I mean when I say that? Think about it from Paul and Timothy's perspective. This is a simple thing in one one sense, but it really takes time to put your mind into it and think about what's going on here. I mean, you've got Timothy who's been given this new job. He has this new vocation, and Paul encouraged him over and over again, Timothy, trust me, this is what God wants you to be doing. I'm telling you the truth. He wants you to stay in Ephesus. He wants you to pastor this church. Remember the moment when the elders laid their hands on you and reminded you of the gift that God has given you? Timothy heard all that, and he believed it. But now it just doesn't feel like anything's going on, and Timothy's terrified. Timothy feels like maybe those things aren't happening. And so he's scared to death. Well, what about Paul? What about all the things that Paul saw God do over the course of his life? He saw God do amazing things. Thousands come to Christ. All kinds of miracles happening. He saw all that. And now he sits in a bleak, damp, dark cell adjacent to the Roman Colosseum. Doubt is pervasive. What happens when the only two people in one room trying to encourage one another, what happens when both of them are scared? Then what do you do? What are you going to do? When you don't have one person in a room that's not scared, that's confident, what happens when that begins to waver? That's a scary place. Now, what I want to do this morning is just talk about the first two verses of what we read. We won't get to all seven. The title of my sermon that's in your bulletin's wrong. Uh, we're just going to talk about two verses this morning. Um, because I'm, I just, I'm so curious of what it means to be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. I don't know. I mean, I want to know what that means. Because I've been said that. People, I've shared like frustrations and fears and doubts with people in my life. And they've came back with a line like, John, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And it feels like a gotcha, like a zinger, like something that's supposed to get them out of a conversation with me, not something that's supposed to be formative and actually life-changing. And it, I mean, it could be me. It could just be me. And I'm difficult uh, to get to stop talking. I'm hard to get out of conversations with. But... It's been unhelpful, I, you know, if I can say that. I know, I know that sounds cynical. So, all cynicism and irreverence aside, it sounds important, right? It sounds important to know what it means to be strengthened in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. So, I want to know what it means. All right. Here's what I think is interesting about this verse. Um, and I think how it connects to what I'm saying about things like this being hard to understand. If you take on board a view of the Bible that says it's inerrant, it's totally trustworthy, it's authoritative, it can be the rule for your life in all things doctrinal and practical, you can take it on board, read it and live it out, and you believe that's wisdom, if that's what we believe, which we do, then surely when you read verses like this that sound like ambiguous or vague, surely that's a spirit-inspired 
thing. Like, surely Paul knew when he wrote that, that that could come off in a way that isn't easily understood and the Spirit wouldn't have led to write something. You guys see what I'm saying? Surely there's intention behind it. And my sneaking suspicion is that, of course, Paul knew his audience. He certainly knew Timothy. He calls him his child in the first verse. And you all know what I mean when I say, no, he knew his audience. It's like if you um, were an economist, let's say, and you had somebody come to you that you knew had taken at least a couple classes in economics in college, and they said, hey, so-and-so, what happened in 2008 with the housing market crash? If you were talking to somebody like that, you might say, what was those dadgum collateralized debt obligations? That's what happened in 2008. But if I came to you, the uninitiated and uneducated in the guild of economists and said, what happened in 2008? You might just say, look, man, I mean, John, sorry, but people were trying to buy things that they couldn't afford. You would say it simply for me because you would understand that I wouldn't have any idea what you mean by a collateralized debt obligation. So I think what we're saying here is that Paul knows that Timothy is in a place to understand what he's saying. He's in a place where he's he's begun to be aware of who he is. He's in a place where he's learned to understand his greatest fears He's in a place where he's learned to understand the depths of his sin and his failures. And he's in a place where he's learned to be honest and authentic about all of this. He's also already in a place more or less where he's learned uh, to understand the gospel. See, I think that Timothy is in a very, very specific situation here. I don't think that verse 1 would have come to Timothy from Paul if all Timothy had said to Paul is, Paul, I'm sad my mother died. And Paul responded, hey, be strong with the grace that's in Christ Jesus. That would be maybe a trite and saccharine response to real human grief. And so I think uh, what I want to do, let's just take a step back, say, what is that strength? What does it look like? Um, And to me, I think the strength that is in Christ Jesus is just simply a strength that helps us to stop hiding. Um, I think hiding is like the simplest and first thing that we do with fear. Remember, that's what we've been talking about, is that Timothy's in a specific situation where he's terrified. He's scared. And the first thing that we do with fear is we begin to hide. Fear stands behind hiding because it's just the easiest way that we know to protect ourselves. But hiding never exterminates the root perpetrator of a fear. We learn to hide as children, and our hiding gets more sophisticated as we get older. Of course, one of the first games we play as children is what? It's hide-and-go-seek, which is like organized and competitive hiding, which we ingratiate our children with and tell them to have fun. And as we get older, we learn more sophisticated and hidden ways of hiding. We hide. You guys know the facades that you wear. You know the facades that you make up. We hide behind the things that we love to purchase. We hide behind the people that we have to associate with because they build a facade for us. We hide behind athletics or academics. We hide behind the way that we carry ourselves. As we get older, we hide behind our leadership roles and our vocations. All of these things are ways of obscuring who we are and ways that we can distance ourselves from each other. 
It's, in, it's totally fascinating to me how many times you see hiding happen in the Bible. It's, I mean, it's, it's innumerable, but it feels innumerable. It happens all the time. Remember, one of the first things that uh, Adam and Eve did, what did Adam and Eve do after they sinned? They hid, right? That's the very first thing they did. They did it because they felt guilty. Of course, God doesn't want that. He wants us to come out of that, to come out of hiding and out of shame and be who we are, finding confidence in who we are in Him, a creature made in the image of God, rescued by His mercy through the work of Jesus. But how are we going to do that? What does that look like? Are you going to summon strength and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and strip off the facades that you build on your own strength? Of course not. You're not going to do that. What you're probably going to do is to do exactly what Timothy did, which is to begin the long, dark road of confession. One of the most moving things to me about the second, Paul's second letter to Timothy is in chapter 1, where he tells Timothy, I remember your tears. Now, do you think that those tears were simply Timothy's tears crying because he was sad that Paul was leaving? Maybe. I mean, that might be part of it. But I bet that's not all of it. I bet you that there was a moment in there that truly was like a pastoral scene where Timothy was at Paul crying, saying, I feel totally desperate and totally inadequate to run this church that you give me to run. I don't feel like I can do it. I feel inadequate. And he cried. And Paul remembered those tears. You don't just re- He's not just remembering tears from saying goodbye. He's remembering tears of confession. But confession means us learning to do what he did, which is just being honest about who you are and being honest about how you try to hide who you are. Maybe being honest about the way that you try to hide through the way that you use your money or the way that you hoard it. Being hi- hiding, by the way, being honest about the way that you hide behind the way that you manipulate people, that's with your personality, that's confession. And if you do it that way, it might put you in a really dark place, and it might be a place that you don't walk right out of, but it'll put you in a place like Timothy was, where you become an ideal recipient of the very simple word, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The problem is, by and large, we don't do confession. We do evasion. And we do evasion in a million different ways. A million different ways. Through half-hearted confession, through over-confession. We do evasion in a million ways. I mean, there's people in this room who literally, this is true, know me better than anybody else in the world. That's true. Some of the people that know me in the best are sitting in this room. But they would have no idea if I looked at pornography last night, if I purged my supper last night, if I haven't drawn a sober breath for weeks, they wouldn't know. If I've been nursing a resentment against Anna that I haven't been honest about, they wouldn't know those things about me unless I took the time to sit down and say, brother, here's where I am, and here's where I've fallen, here's where I've sinned. I think we have to learn what Timothy has apparently learned, and that is this. Even at the expense of great embarrassment, confession is always less painful than hiding. 
Embarrassment means you've been brought out into the light and exposed, no question. I get that. But the light is always less scary than the darkness, it seems to me. So what is grace? And how does it strengthen you? Well, I think that grace means that your sins are forgiven. I'm really happy to tell you that in such a simple fashion and not to distract you with a big definition. Grace simply means that your sins are forgiven. You remember David's words in Psalm 32? Happy is the man, or blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, to whom the Lord does not credit iniquity. I think the strength in the grace of Jesus Christ that Timothy's receiving is a kind of contentment in who he is. It's a kind of happiness, or contentment is a maybe better way to put it, a contentment in his situation. That's happening because he's remembering and realizing that his calling to be in Ephesus, though it's painful, it's simple. I mean, it's painful and hard, but it's simple to understand. We talked about it the whole time we were in 1 Timothy. What's Paul telling Timothy over and over again he has to do? Just watch his life and watch his doctrine. Very difficult, but not complex. Timothy can't, in the final account, truly be afraid of what's going to happen within his church or from the outside. I think he's strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus by his assurance that God wants him to be who he is sin and all. The grace of Christ makes Timothy capable of not having to be someone else. His identity as Timothy is firmly rooted and established in order that he doesn't have to try to be someone else. I know that sounds kind of existential, but the point is everyone in this room can relate to a sense of inadequacy. Everyone feels that. Everybody in one way or another senses that they feel inadequate in their marriage, or as a parent, or in their vocations, or in their roles in the community, you sense your own inadequacy in one way or the other. And Timothy certainly did. We remember David said that a number of times. He's not like Paul. He's not even probably like Titus. But Timothy, Paul is reminding him, he doesn't have to be Paul. He doesn't have to be Titus. He does not have to be Moses. He does not have to be Isaiah. He doesn't have to be Jeremiah. He doesn't have to be John the Baptist. He does have to be Timothy. Sins forgiven and all. He's got to be that. But he doesn't have to be anything else. God has now pronounced Timothy man in Christ. Just as he does to each one of you. Man or woman in Christ. We feel inadequate in some way, but I think the strength of the gospel in that sense secures for us our identity, and it alleviates us from the call that we all feel to hide. Real quickly, I just want to look at verse 2 and close on this, because I think that what we've just mentioned is sort of Paul's broad theological point. Even though it's just be strong in grace, that's the theological thing. But on the heels of that, he leaves Timothy with something very practical. And that is, Christian discipleship is not exercised by individuals, but astride friends. Listen to what he says. You then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you have heard from me through many witnesses. Entrust this to faithful men, those who will be sufficient to teach others also. What does that mean for Timothy? Well, I think for Timothy it means... 
all the work of this church that he has in Ephesus, it's not entirely on his shoulders. It's not. He needs to pass off some of this work off to others and let the thing become reproducible. Paul is saying you, can't, you just can't do all of this all by yourself. Now that's a great model for a church, for how a church should think about teaching and kind of personal discipleship. But I think there's something for everyone here. Even if you're, we're not thinking about how to build a church or structure leadership or hand delegate responsibilities, even if we're not thinking about that, there's something to be said from this. And I think it's this. And actually, ironically, this very sentence was told to me by somebody over lunch this Thursday. I'm taking that from them. But that's this. Shoulder-to-shoulder mission often remedies the fear and guilt and grief and a whole host of other things that drain our spirits and produce doubt. And the truth of what it means to be raised up and strengthened in the gospel will almost always come through the voice of a friend. If you struggle to understand what it means to be strengthened in the gospel, the way that that's articulated to you, finally and irrevocably, so that it goes into your brain, into your heart, and changes you, it's going to come through the voice of a friend. That's always going to happen. Now we harp on that all the time here. But the reason that we do that is that we still see isolation all the time. I mean, I still, I still see it in my own heart. And so reminding us over and over again, what it means to be strengthened in the gospel, strengthened in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, will almost always need to be entrusted by you to another human being that you love and trust. Well, one of my favorite uh, stories in the Old Testament is the story of David and Jonathan. You guys remember them too? David, of course, is uh, in First Samuel meant to be to grow. He's anointed to uh, eventually become the king of Israel, and he kind of moves into the royal enclave with the present King Saul. And David's relationship with Saul is sort of on again, off again, and then very much off into eternity. But Saul's son, Jonathan, feels a great affection for David. And the writer of 1 Samuel says that their hearts and souls were knit together. Now, At a certain point when the gravity of Saul's hate for David became so strong that David has to be expelled from the royal palace and flee to the wilderness, Jonathan makes an arresting and startling move by doing something that in a way betrays his own father. 1 Samuel 23, there's a sweet verse there where the writer says, Jonathan arose and went to Horesh to strengthen David's hand in God. That kind of takes us full circle. Because see, Timothy and David needed the exact same thing, and that's the thing we all need, that is strength. But consider how Jonathan took on this task. He didn't wait to bump into David the next time they were both like at tabernacle or synagogue or temple together. He didn't just wonder how David was doing. He built up himself in intentionality, got off of his bed, and walked into the wilderness to do what? To strengthen David's hand in God. My dad used to always say that that's the great paradox of Christian friendship. That is, 
I'm always telling you, all of you, I need you. But what I need you for is to teach me not to depend on you, but to depend on the God who strengthens me finally and totally. They knew David they knew that David and Timothy needed them, Paul and Jonathan, I mean, but what they needed primarily was them to teach them to strengthen their hands in God. Frankly, we lack the power and ability to stay the long road of the Christian life with endurance, don't we? Endurance is something that comes from God, but it's, also, it's often mediated through a human being. And maybe that human being serves to simply remind us over and over again of things like the value of confession, the absoluteness of your forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the transformative power of God Himself through the presence of His Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word and Your love. And we thank You for the way that You strengthen us. We thank You for the fact that Your grace is not just a thing that is forensic. It's transformative. It comes into our life and it shapes us and it moves us in a direction where we know that we can stand secure in who You've made us. We love You, Lord. In Your name we pray. Amen.